0: Hello again to the second podcast in what I've decided is now the new season for the Fram Jacket podcast and it is with Tom Southam who is an ex-professional racing cyclist from the UK um, and is very well known in that world. Uh, He is uh, a very good writer um, and he is also the sports director of EF Education can't remember the exact name Um, it's the big American team which has lovely pink kit, it's very lovely, I'm not being sarcastic, it's really cool Um, and um, he's a really really interesting character, he's definitely his own man Um, he's quite different from me, he um, is quite uh, sort of circumspect and and quieter and more considered, I'm a sort of throw it all out there, over exuberant prick and so it's quite an interesting contrast as sort of finding a a sort of midway between that um, and me sort of calming down a little bit, not a lot. Um, And if you're not already aware, the Fram Jacket podcast is all about having a proper mic which is important because sometimes men need that if there are really serious mental health issues that they want to or just horrible events in their life they want to talk about uh, things that are bothering them but also because it's just a nice thing to do and in our modern lives quite often we don't get to talk about things properly um, and it's just interesting and I've tried to always find interesting charismatic people to talk to about stuff. Um, it is not an interview, it is a chin wag. Sometimes it's a bit more or less like that. Um, but the important thing is to talk about real life. We never ever edit because I want to leave in the mistakes because the mistakes and the imperfection are just as beautiful as the real thing, is my very strongly held belief. Um, and let's crack on. Thanks, bye. I asked you to do a podcast so, so basically the background is that I spotted you at Froom Independent Market yeah. where I had a stand which seems to be like most oh, <laughs> no of my customers like wow this Froome Independent Market is like kind of a big deal which is bizarre because it's so small and cute yeah. but I saw you passing and I know you through, through racing cycling and I just I'm, I really hate grabbing well-known people but I wasn't grabbing a well-known people because some people would kind of go oh he's a guy who's Works for this big racing team. I just always wanted to meet you because I was saying to you, I really like your, your writing, yeah. um, and I think you takes you look at the world and cycling or whatever with a different views. I just thought there's a fella that I would really like, to sort of. So I wasn't like
1: going, "Oh, you used to be a pro cyclist? No. That's amazing!" Even no. though I'm really pro cycling. Most um, of my wife's amusement, by the way. So we went we went there that day. Like she basically dragged me there, and. Uh, because I want to do something else, and she she wanted to buy something for herself, and then in the end, like we saw you, and she uh, she, she she was uh, she was most amused. Ended up not buying anything for herself and uh, being frustrated, but she sort of uh, <laughs> you you end up getting a
0: jacket, yeah. and she uh, <laughs> she's kind of like, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, she was uh, amused. So to set the scene, uh, we've
0: got. Lily my dog has basically attached herself to you pretty mm-hmm. much immediately Yep. Uh, in my living room um, and it's actually been about eight months since I did a podcast for mainly sort of personal reasons nothing hardcore it's been really really busy um, and I've always wanted to do them properly and so it's really nice to get going again and so I suppose you know we had a chat about what we, I wanted to do with this, but for, I think, reacquainting anyone or anyone's new, the purpose of the podcast is just to, I think something that's missing, so, right, now I'm trying and put this together properly, is Fram as a brand sells really nice jackets, that's one part, fine, great, and then the other part is that, so I had a breakdown a couple of years ago, and I've long identified or believed that men's social system is pretty fucked up, it's not as um, good as you used to be. I'm not, I find it relatively difficult, even though I'm fairly extrovert, to sort of make friends. And I think there's a lot of, particularly being English, a lot of social barriers and this apologetic thing. And when that comes to quite something quite serious, like you're, you're feeling really awful and you need someone to talk to, that's a really serious barrier. And basically the the premise was actually the best way for men to talk to each other is in, in the pub that was always the social structure that's what I did when I was a teenager when I was younger um, and when I was living in London there were so few decent pubs and I was so busy that never happened now when I'm in the UK sorry in uh, Somerset I go to the pub a bit more but I'm still busy for you know just life but I just I had this thing about the pub and having a pint and being able to talk through stuff well I've actually realised that you can do that anywhere, so the podcast has sort of drifted a little bit. Now we're in my living room having a cup of coffee um, and And essentially, I think it's just a it's a chat, and it can go I, i'm I'm interested in you and just talking about life as a whole." rather than, mm-hmm. um, so, so, so from my point of view, and if you Google who you are or someone Googles me, there's going to be certain things. You see, I am, you know, the creator of a company that did really well and failed. And I am, if you looked at LinkedIn, a consultant in marketing, and I am the founder of France. That's essentially me. Well, that's actually not me really that much. Uh, it's part of me, but I'm also a dad and all this other crap. So if you Google you, you are a ex so to set the scene, because most people aren't in cycling listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, some are, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, you are on Google, which is a poor definition of person, <laughs> a person, a ex G B racing cyclist who's raced on the continent and has retired and is now part of a very big professional cycling team called EF Education. Is that
1: Correct. That's a hundred percent correct. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, by by no means my entire life history. But yeah, I mean, that's me, really. Um, what do you think you are? Um, just getting away with it, <laughs> right? You know, like. Um, do you feel you're chancing your way through life? No, I, I, I think I, I consider myself extremely lucky. Um, like extremely lucky because I. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a bike racer. From what age? Um, probably about 11 or 12. That's, that's when I started racing. That I wanted to do and I did it. And um, You know, I was professional. I got paid to do it. And then I finished, I sort of came towards the end of my racing career and I didn't really know what I wanted to do I did a master's in writing. Um, and then I was like, right, I want to write. Um, and then I got paid to, to write for a few years, um, which what, was were you, what were you writing? Um, I, I stayed mostly in the field of cycling. Um, to was say. that for a rouleau? I did quite a lot of uh, um, different, um, so I freelanced and did um, you know all, all sorts of different publications and bits and pieces and then sort of like did a few bits of kind of um, copywriting and I went into a magazine. When I first finished, I went into a pro cycling magazine and did mm. a month Did a month there. But I mean, I, I never really had any intention. So Is that you, pingy or me? I'm going to switch this off. It's <laughs> <more>. <laughs> if you need to get something. No, I no, know. it's... Uh, I was worried it was the dog. No, the dog's not pinging. Um. What was I... Yeah, so... Where was I? So you were working for pro cycling and you yeah, were writing. Pro, yeah, so I went there and I did, I did a month with them and they offered me a job. I didn't really want to be in an office um, because I... I'd never been in one. So was your career up to that point, basically,
0: trying to be a cyclist, now you're a cyclist when you're old enough, you know, that was what you were doing? Did you had jobs
1: through your cycling career? or? Uh, no, I didn't work. Um, I went on to the, what was then called the World Class Performance mm-hmm. Programme, which is now, I guess, the GB Academy or something, mm-hmm. when I was 18 and I got paid £6,000 a year, which felt like all the money in the world back oh. then £500 um, a month what was that beginning of the millennium sort of stuff it's, 2000 was my first year right I so. think that's when it all kicked off I, yeah. I, I think it started in 99 ok we, was the first funded riders and I was a junior then and then we finished that um, I could junior, had a good junior year and then went
0: on to the program what was your state of mind when that happened mm-hmm. were you kind of like uh, oh my god I've made it I'm the big man or were you, was you, were you nervous and you had to prove yourself how does it feel to I think we handed that sort of accolade, I suppose.
1: I, I I was never really one for kind of enjoying things on the way. Right. Um, because I kind of, I was trying to get somewhere. Like, really working quite hard to get somewhere. So, so when I got that sort of, I went on to that. I thought, yeah, but this is the next step. This is a natural step. Um... I mean, we, we were really lucky because we got funded and people, you know, you could have been as good as me or better five years before and you would have had nothing. Yeah. Um, and there was actually quite a lot of bitterness at the time. I remember, like, doing races and, like, having people complain at us because, are oh, you're spoiled. And, um,
0: there was a lot of... Oh, so I, I was racing in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, and I stopped because of injury quite young and I wasn't obviously anywhere near you I managed to scrape my way into a national championship once and stuffed it up and that was as close as I got you know but I I was absolutely obsessed by cycling and something I'm interested in in is first of all because I think it's quite an intense and unusual thing to become part of a a sort of any country's sort of system for a particular sport but secondly because I'm interested because I never got there but it it was my absolute obsession and dream for many many years and um and so, but I knowing what I'm like with the successes I've had, I never enjoyed any of my success because all I wanted was to. I thought, right, shit, I better do something else now. Yeah. I've got to keep going.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it was always the same. You know, and it's. I kind of always had in my head, it's like, okay, like when, like when you finished racing, then you can like kind of look back and enjoy it. But then I don't do that either because <laughs> I, I, now I don't want to dwell on it. Why don't you want to dwell on it? Um, because I think. We're, we're, at the time, it's a huge thing in your life, and then when it finishes, it it kind of you realise how much life there is afterwards. Like mm. I remember being young and thinking that like, okay, well once um, you know, Johnny Buño retires, like he's he's, he, he's just kind of finished. He's just loafing around, like <laughs> like waiting, you know. And he he would have been like thirty five, like younger than me now, right? And I kind of saw because I was so focused on the on. Was he your big hero? Yeah. When I was young, when I was dead young, he was so cool. He's a dude, yeah. He's so cool. And he's still cool. I mean, he flies helicopters now, (laughs) which is real cool. cool. Um, And, you know, I I was just interested in the athlete, and then once that sort of finished, they were just sort of old people. But now I realise that, well, now I see it differently. It's kind of like that I still consider myself pretty young and like.
0: you must be younger than me Uh, you're 38 now
1: right I'm 45
0: I still think I'm 35 and I look in the mirror and go "Uh? oh
1: what yeah well I I shaved the other day which took a few years off so it could be that making me feel
0: so so something I remember from when I was I don't think I was ever cut out to be a racing cyclist for some fairly obvious physiological reasons mainly because mentally I the amount of commitment it takes and I and I got to uni and basically, like the first year, I was just training and training and training. I literally didn't drink until right at the end of my first year when I started getting injured and I had problems with my back and stuff. And I was like, hang about, I should actually be trying to have sex with ladies yeah. and <laughs> drinking and clubbing and doing all the other stuff. Everyone who lived with me who I was a complete nutter. Yeah. And they were probably right. And, and then because I was given permission to fall off the wagon because I was injured, I did quite a big way, got really into clubbing and all that comes with that, yeah. um, and life was probably a lot more fun.
1: Yeah, I mean... But I didn't succeed in my aims. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even go to university, like I just went, so I went straight up. Did you want to? Uh, not really, no. Um, I think like, because like I, I went straight onto this world class performance program, for me it wasn't even a, a question, so I, I never had that temptation, and I, I went and I saw my mates, it was weird, I remember going to see my mates who were at uni. And we were living uh, in France, four of us, um, and you know, like as an athlete, you you learn a lot about like, um, you know, like like your hygiene and everything was clean and the house was nice and it's kind of like we lived at quite a high standard for the mm. young, yeah,
2: most young lads, but with nasty much money.
1: fuckers, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then I, I went to my friend's house at university, like, and I remember we went out and like these. They were the same age as us, but these guys, they just had, like, plates. I everybody mean, classic, like, uni house. My, mm. mate's, my mates still had cardboard boxes with his clothes in and he was taking them out <laughs> of. I remember at one point, like, a girl had come back with this, this, my mate was trying to sleep with, and she asked him for a glass of water and we sat around in the front room, and he's like, uh, I remember, like, seeing his dishes and how much mould was in, and I'm like, oh, what's he going to do here? And he sort of went, yeah, okay, all right. And he walked off, instead of cleaning up, um, like, cleaning up a glass, he came back with a saucer. <laughs> full of water because it was the only thing you could buy <laughs> what did she do lap it like a cat <laughs> what
2: the hell's going
1: on she drank it fair play sir mm, um, I can
0: remember when I, I sh- in my second year at Liverpool when I properly fell off the wagon and become a normal human I, being. I lived in a house of 11 people and um, and out sort of kitchenette thing was right at the bottom of this huge house in Liverpool on, in Newton Park and um, it was great fun but it was just horrific and I I was brought up by my single parent mum and you had to help out. You just had to. Mm. I would have felt bad not helping out and it's just all pretty obvious stuff. And so I uh, could actually do the washing up and I felt it was my duty to do the washing up. That was a normal thing to do, you know. Yeah, I was independent, which is probably, you know, what living abroad and being a pro cyclist teaches you. You have mm. to be independent, look after yourself. So I turned up at uni able to do washing of clothes and washing up. And it used to really, really piss me off that a lot of... I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. It was a lot of kids who come straight out and hadn't got a fucking clue yeah. how to do anything. And I thought, Jesus Christ. And, um, and uh, I can remember, because I, I was a lot angrier then than I am now, is um, uh, that um, this house was just, yes, mouldy saucepans and crockery from these lads who chair my house it was mostly women I live with these lads are just piles of crud it's absolutely horrific um, and I just said if you don't do them tonight I'm going to throw them out in the morning the bin's coming and they went yeah yeah fuck off so I did and yeah. I took them out in front of them pans clinking in the morning and I threw them into the back of the, the truck and I, I asked them to crush them in front of these guys and it was sort of probably a bit of a dick thing to do really <laughs> I was gonna say they wouldn't have but no they didn't appreciate it but it pissed me off that much and th- that also reminds me of the just that thing of living with other people mm. like I've lived with my my wife Emily for 23 years and before that I lived in a flat on my own and uh, I as soon as I left uni I was just desperate to live on my own because other people's hygiene
1: particularly really got my nose yeah <laughs> that's uh, definitely what put me off. like th- th- those sort of living conditions and just you know um I just wasn't interested in it at the time not at all, not at all. It-, it was a different world to me um but um,
0: did you did you have fun um living with a load of lads abroad
1: uh yes and no i mean the f- the first six weeks we were in what was a converted garage, so it was like the the, the team house was three garages which they changed the, like, roller door into, like, a, you know, a glass sort of thing with a door in. And there were bunk beds in, so there six bunks in there. and four of us in there. And, I mean, it was the size of a garage. And at the end of it, it had, like, a tiny little two hobs. And then behind that, there was a shower. And there was four of us in there for six weeks, and it was, like, that was tight and that was hard. And then they eventually moved us, I don't know how, they moved us into a, a an, an apartment in... Uh, in the, sort of, in, I don't know how you to describe it, the Cartier. Um, what region of France? Oh, sorry. It was Belgium, wasn't it? No, it was France. not oh, okay. In, uh, in the northwest. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. In, in um, and it, it was great. Um, the first year, I think, yeah, I sort of stopped racing halfway through the year because um, I was knackered um, and uh, just went and sort of met people and did things, which was good fun. Mm.
0: Um, was your so your writing that that always been something that come out since you were a kid or did that come out later
1: no it, like it was actually when I was doing a race with John Herity when we were I think I would have been 19 or something and he said oh you should I don't know why but he suggested I should write it, like do a write up of it for the British Cycling website mm. which I did and that was well received and I just kept doing it for there and you'd like you know when you do something you get praised that would be called content now yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that was it um you get praise for something then you enjoy doing it so you do it more Um,
0: did you actively want to seek something that was different from just racing and training or there was no sort of I just wonder whether it was quite boring or mundane at times and so a sort of outlet or potentially something you could do as a career afterwards were you ever thinking about a career afterwards
1: or not really um not really, it's kind of why I said like you know, earlier that I was just getting away with it you know. Um,
0: It sounds like you just
1: you were all in, you
0: basically, that was your world and and probably at 19, 20 you're not even thinking beyond that anyway
1: No, no, I I kind of yeah, I I don't know what I was thinking Um, I can't remember what I was thinking at 19, 20 apart from
0: what I was doing at uni at the time I was pretty lost until I was 30 really not not in a hardcore way, just didn't know what I wanted to do
1: no I don't think um, I mean I don't think that a lot of you know a lot of people do Um, and I think you're actually really lucky if you do end up doing what you want to do which is what I sort of touched on earlier Like like I've always managed to be able to do what I want to do um And I think, like, working where I work, I'm actually also surrounded by a lot of people and I meet a lot of people who are in the same situation. Mm. And it's become totally normalised. This sort of idea of, like, I know, I I just want to do this. This is what I should be able to do. But it's actually, like, you know, most people don't get to do that, Mm. Um, you Mm. know. Do you aware of being quite lucky? Extremely, extremely. Like, you know, my old man was a teacher for 30 years and it's like, while he went in with... You know good intentions and, and, and wanted to teach, by the time he finished teaching, like it had completely changed right. and he I'm sure he didn't want to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean, but like I've got no idea in my head of like what it is to be somewhere where I don't want to be for a day. Wow ever? Not really No, I mean, um you know, I worked the odd sort of menial job every now and again when I was um sort of in between times here and there but not really that much. And I- Do you think that's also because you might be quite an accepting
0: person? Because I don't think, so it's interesting because when we did the sort of preamble to this, I was saying about, it's really for me, for me, what I want with Fram, the brand is not to be a perfect brand. I think that being a sort of marketing person, that's my, you know, creating products that are hopefully really good. And marketing that engages people in hopefully a genuine way. I'm very aware that a lot of marketing is bollocks. And it's actually potentially quite corrosive bollocks as well. Um, I'm not sure. I've got an image of corrosive bollocks now. Um, but I'm not sure how that works. But um, so what I wanted with Fram is to have something that talks about real life. And the fact about real life is it's sometimes shit. Mm. But it sounds pretty good so far, which is great. I mean, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know... Um... You don't have to have negative stuff in your life. No, I, like I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, like I agree one hundred percent. Nobody sails through life um, with with, with sort of nothing going on. Um, it's uh, like the more you talk to people when you know, like when you're young and stuff, you start learning. Oh, like this, but like this is happened to this person, and this, and you add it all up. You know, everybody's got something somewhere.
0: So, so on your team that you work for now. What's your job title? Sports director.
1: What does that involve? So basically, I for the non-cycling listener. I mean, there's there's two parts to my job. Like one is sort of running the the, the staff of the team, which is like the mechanics, the soigners, um, the chefs, etc. etc. Kind of et like a general management. Role. It's just it's just the more I read about management it's just like 100% like just a, a totally standard management job with mm-hmm. the same challenges as anything else just mm-hmm. in in a moving environment people are sick people have problems at home they turn up late intrapersonal but, problems yeah is a massive one you know right. like this person's falling out with this person I mean we've got a lot of we've got a lot of different um, nationalities and cultures in the team which mm-hmm. I find interesting I, I guess more than you would in in your sort of average job you know you've got a couple of basques
0: this is an american team that has quite a sort of probably one of the most
1: liberal-minded more modern sort of viewpoints of any any team i guess yeah i think it's um you know it it was found like every team in in my opinion in cycling because the way that they're sort of put together is sort of a reflection of the person who's at the top of it
0: And, and the interesting thing is so something i've seen in myself and other founders i know i've worked for is every business and in many ways particularly in cycling more than any other sport the team or the business reflects the founder yep. and so for instance with Volpine, uh the reflection in me was that it was it was good at clothing and <laughs> you know product and it was good at marketing and brand. I was recognized for that, but it was bad at finance and operations. It was bad at the nitty gritty, the stuff that underpins it. And that's why it went bust because I didn't mitigate those things well enough. You learn your lesson hindsight. So now, of course, Fram is heavily mitigated with those things because I work with my best mate who is very good at finance and operations and the nitty gritty. And because we've made it very small, so it's a much safer company. But sorry, you were saying about EF is that's reflected. Every team is reflected
1: in its yeah. and, founder. Um, so uh, Jonathan Vought our founder, sort of founder of the team with this... Um, it was the first team to be sort of specifically anti-doping, um, but didn't take... Didn't necessarily take a very, you know, um, easy or popular approach in that... What quite non-judgmental. The, yes. So he basically, you know, accepted riders who, you know, sort of confessed to, you know having done things in their past and had problems and, you know, even sign writers like Thomas Decker went to the team after, you know, he'd served a doping ban. Well, he, he
0: got ripped apart
1: yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, everyone time. got ripped apart. Anyone big who was caught time. for doping, yeah. Big time. And, and like, you know, those guys just get thrown to the dogs. Um, but, uh, yeah, he founded the team sort of based on that and like, uh, these days it's kind of... um And he's, he'd miss a doping as yeah. well. Yeah. And, and these days it's every team's an open team it has to be like, like yeah it's, it's all changed and so but this team was actually fundamental in that change happening yes um, it was it was kind
0: of because obviously my knowledge of pro cycling as an outsider as a fan you know pretty avid is it always took quite a big stand first and got a lot of grief for it and mm-hmm. that, I think that liberal mindedness or especially because I think being an English speaking American team so it's quite disengaged from the old school sort of mainland European view of the world really helped.
1: Yeah, big time. And I think it sort of separated the team. And for someone like me who was, you know, I was still a rider back then, you sort of looked at it and went, wow, that's like such a breath of fresh air. Um, because it the, the landscape was different, you know, um, mm. to what it is now. Um, but now the team is is continuing to sort of Trying to like break ground, I'd say. You know, um, this year they're looking at you know expanding the way that we take on races. You would have heard about the alternative calendar. Um,
0: so, so for the listener, non-listener, what you're doing is basically pro cycling has an extremely traditional, long-held set of races yeah. that happen at the same time every year, different formats, long tours like the Tour de France and single days, etc. But suddenly, there's all these new races like Dirty Kanza yeah. uh, which got a lot of publicity which is a very new sort of gravel based race in the US which is totally outside this sort of sphere of influence of say something like a Gazetta del Sport or something you know it's kind of from my point of view being a marketing person and being a fan of Rafa and how they've expanded I saw what Rafa were doing and then saw seeing what your team are doing in terms of new races and I thought of course that's what that should be doing it's what everyone should be doing because you know cycling as i i I don't want this to make a cycling podcast. I'm just very interested in the way that cycling and what you do reflects on other many other parts of the world and about how people think. I think all these are microcosms the same thing and and I just think that cycling is very very traditional and at times extremely unwelcoming and snobby Mm. i found that when i was trying to race i found it incredibly difficult Mm. to be accepted in um and and that really stayed with me it's why i've always inclusivity in cycling's been a big deal for me because i never ever saw any women and i found it unbelievably difficult to be accepted because the rules were so specific yeah in fact there is a thing called the rules which is now almost beyond parody it's just rubbish you know you so not wanting to make you blush but you've always been seen as a very sort of an aesthete in cycling and very cool and you've been a model for Rafa and stuff and so by that turn you'd be expected to adhere to the rules very
1: strongly? No. I it, it's, it's strange but they always just it always just really got on my nerves. Just, I, I, I don't, Good. Because I, I, <laughs> they mean, really got on my yeah, nerves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, first and foremost I don't really love rules. Um, that's no. that's why I chose to ride my bike and live my life the way that I have lived it is because I don't want to be confined by rules. So probably the strongest emotion around cycling, of many, is is freedom. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so, the idea for me of trying to like cap it and tell me what I can and can't do is just it's it's absurd. I, I think there's this sort of perverse like um, the way it used to be was you would um, nobody would tell you anything. You were just supposed to know. Mm. And if you didn't know, you're an idiot. And then when you did work it out, you looked at the next person. Instead of helping them, you thought, you're an idiot.
0: Because you're it's that, that natural sort of thing of, oh, I've, I've jumped, I've rung ahead of that yeah. person, now I can look down. Yeah. It's a really shitty thing, and I've done it, you know, of um, I can remember really clearly incredible clue i could probably remember pretty much every single club run i did initially before i got accepted and i was literally accepted because i got the big hand when i was racing you know when i started racing and i was i don't know 15 or whatever and i was doing club runs and this big hand because all the criterion riders these sort of city center races were big compared to me I had a big hand landed on my shoulder and went yep yeah, you're all right <laughs> yeah. and that was it That's you know it. And instead of somebody barking at me for eight weeks, suddenly, because I just turned up every week for eight weeks and I was close to tears a lot of the time because I just thought, what am I doing this for? Yeah. And then I was in. And then you get these rules. I can remember because I, got, I was quite a good time trialist. So that's the sort of aerodynamic races with the helmets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I wasn't very good at road racing because I, I was very light and I'd get kicked about and I didn't really have very good skills. And uh, So time trialling was good because I was quite fit. And... Um, I can remember talking to the head of my team uh, and uh, I was on quite a good team in Liverpool and I said, I'm saving up to get a disc wheel. And, disc wheel, and he said, what's your best time? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm just floating above an hour uh, for on a road bike. And he went, well, until you go under an hour, you can't have a disc wheel because you're not good enough to have one. And I said, well, hang on, I'll go under an hour if I get a disc wheel. And he went, no, <laughs> no, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to have good equipment because you're not good enough. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? so eventually I did and then I couldn't afford a disc wheel because I was a student and it didn't matter anyway and I can remember thinking now I've seen that as a club cyclist you know when everything changed the previous decade which suddenly everything changed so fast there was so much snobbery and people go oh look at these blokes you know riding four grand bikes you know carbon
1: fibre and they have massive fat twats and
0: I was like yeah but what harm is it doing you? Mm. Who cares? Yeah.
1: yeah that's one thing that just like I mean that's one thing I mean, I've got ways that I want to do things, you know, right. like I've got like things I would think about when if I went cycling, I have to wear a dress or whatever, but like I would never make anybody else adhere to it, you know. The thought of
0: I, I once had a guy come up to me in Richmond Park. I was riding to a pop up I was doing actually in 2012, and I was riding my nice feather handmade bike from Yorkshire and mm-hmm. shiny campag Nolo, which is all the nice components. So I keep going into cycling depth but and then i was wearing my own gear vulpine gear so i was basically looked like a a trendy cyclist whatever and uh this this guy in full uh road gear rode up to me and said um all the gear no idea you fucking prick and then rode off so being reasonably fit and also being really fucking angry i rode back up to him and i just went And I ranted about how I used to race and I got a sports science degree and I'd done all this stuff, and you know, how, how well, who was he to judge? And none of this shit mattered anyway because anyone can ride how they want, you know. And I just screamed in his face. So I was listening back to this and I was thinking about the whole thing with anger. So I'm, if you met me, I'm quite a sort of soft. Not particularly aggro person but I'm also a very passionate person and I think that anger is the boiling over of passion uh, and a pain and emotional strain and, and for some people that can be beating someone up which is a terrible, terrible thing uh, it's a ludicrous thing and uh, for other people it can just be getting overly upset about things and something I see on social media is this sort of boiling over of anger and I think that i'm actually not a terribly angry person but what i'm also not willing to do is um to back down from things i think are morally wrong um because that makes me feel shitty about myself if i just let them go um and it's quite not hard not to get angry about certain things uh, in life because some of them are really unjust uh, But anger is a toxic thing. (laughs) So how do we find this nice point where we we deal passionately with the important subjects in our lives without getting angry about the stupid stuff? Um, And social media doesn't help. It often comes back to social media. It's such a weird thing we're still trying to work out in the world. Kind of like it, kind of hate it. Hmm, Something else to think about. Right, a little bit of a break. Music by... all of that is the, if you boil that down to its essence all it is is people trying to climb on top of people to make yeah. themselves look better whether it's cycling or I, I bet it happens in football and rugby or book writing or whatever it is some people unfortunately are sufficiently um, not unhappy enough in their skin that they have to put down other people and unfortunately it's just a, an element of humanity I guess
1: yeah I mean it's one thing I remember like uh, I remember coming across that. Like, a friend of mine that I met and uh, I noticed after a little while he never put anybody down in any way. So it's so easy, like, in conversation just to, like, talk negatively. Like, even, even about your friends, just like a little bit... Gossip is fun. Yeah. And, you know, just like those little bits where you're like, oh, you like... When, when you actually go back and you like, analyse what you've been saying, it's like, oh, no, I was, like, point scoring them down to mm. make myself a bit better. Mm. So like I've, since, since, since then I've like consciously tried not to do it and it's in the environment that I work in it's really hard because I think cycling sort of like I would assume I don't know what like the music industry for example where you get a lot of people who the, the talent and the output is is not too dissimilar so, so what, what sort of puts someone or you know acting what puts someone ahead of somebody else Is it the fact, you know, you've got up here, you've got this bunch that are like just unbelievable. Mm. They're going to make it. And then in the middle, you've got loads and loads and loads who can make it or not make it based on, you know, someone's decision or a whim or this or that. So you get this really sort of catty culture of putting other people down, you know.
0: And And you're you're riding constantly with the people who could take Invert comes a yep. win away from you or make a decision that they crash in front of you or something and those are it's a bit like you know somebody spilling coffee on your computer at the desk yeah. you know it's like oh for fuck's sake you've just ruined all my spreadsheets
1: yeah and, and then you, you could be done but I think like people get and I did it like, like when I finished my racing career it's like God, I, I, I talk too much negatively about people because I'm stuck in this mindset of I'm trying to beat everyone Right. I'm trying to be ahead of everyone. Um, And, like, I I try not to do it. Um, and I I love it when I meet people who just can't, just don't need to say anything bad about anybody else because they're just fine.
0: And and that, you immediately get a sense of trust from those people. Like, I've always found with gossip that anyone who gossips, you just know you're going to be gossiped about. Try living in Italy. Right. (laughs) You
1: know? That's that's why I couldn't live in Italy anymore. I had to leave. When did you what, what period did you live in Italy? Um, two thousand, end of two thousand three to two thousand six. Where where did you live? I was in Tuscany for two years in Como for a year.
0: Um, wow, I've ridden around
1: Como. it's Amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like I found I found Tuscany. Um, I, I preferred Tuscany. Okay. I thought I met a lot more people and. Um, Como is posher. Yeah. Yeah, mm. we lived just uh, just just off the lake. And it, I mean, it was cool, but like it's quite touristy, and mm-hmm. um, it, it was a little bit cold. Do you speak the language? Yeah, I learned Italian. I learned Italian. So you got some French and Italian, and yeah, does that yeah. help you with your day job? Yeah, big time. Right. Um, I actually learned Italian. I think in like two weeks. <laughs> like, um, is that I, an ability? Then it must be. Well, I went there, and so I, I'd learned French, and then I went to Italy without. I got a contract, so I want to come here. Yep, cool. I went there. I didn't know a word and then I went out on I think the second weekend I was there and I met a girl in a nightclub and got my friend who did speak Italian to get her number hmm. and then we I think that was Friday and so I sent her a text message on Saturday we got my friend to like write it out do you want to meet up for a drink and she said yeah let's meet tomorrow and I was like no no, Monday and then I sat down and learned Italian enough to go on a date with her on the Monday wow that's the power of uh Commitment, y- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, else, yeah. the allure of uh, yeah of a good woman, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was I, I found that a really easy one. But I've started on Spanish now because it's
0: I like Spanish.
1: Yeah, it's uh, quite hard to learn when you speak Italian. I've, I find it hard to learn because I speak Italian. It's so I've close those Latin Italian. languages. Yeah. It's so close, yeah. And I just drop into the Italian,
0: and you're not quite right. I am I, I should be good at French because of my French roots and everyone in my family speaks French apart from me just because my mum, I, I don't know if this is an urban myth, I must check with my mum, but she said to me when I was quite young, would you rather learn French or get into science? And I just said, I'm not into, I'm not into languages, I want to do this. I really regret that now. I was, my mum was quite laissez-faire. <laughs> um, and uh, would just let me do the things I was into. Yep. So uh, I didn't learn French, which is a mistake. So I started learning Spanish. I used to work at... Um, Getty Images and they, they just free Spanish lessons and uh, so I totally, started learning there and I just really liked it and I went to Argentina on holiday with Emily once and I really liked Argentina as a country but I particularly liked it because the language is spoken in almost a Germanic way they break oh, out the really? words it's, it's much clearer more clearly enunciated with of course the Spanish of course it sort of flows man
1: I mean listen to Spanish I have Spanish radio on at home now just so I, like you start to soak it up and just like the speed of the sentences, and just totally, un- like you said, unver- it's bonkers. It's insane.
0: I, I, I you know, I can remember being in, in these lessons and learning this stuff, and then hearing it said and just going, "Oh my god, I'm going to get destroyed. <laughs> How am I going to do this?" And I have that sort of, you know, I think most people have it when you're trying to speak a language of thinking you're
1: going to make a fool of yourself. Yeah, yeah, but you just have to crack on. You do. I remember someone telling me that like when you want to learn, when you want to speak Italian. And you go to do it for the first time in public, you just have to, like, do it with... Like you're doing a stupid impression of an Italian, like, like uh, you know, caricature or... Throw your car. hands around and... Yeah. Right. I, and I did it, and I, mean, I was going, went to a framing shop, and I'm like, right, I'm going to speak Italian now. I went to the framing shop and just went for it, and then it worked. Nobody bad an eyelid, so, you know. What, um... So, so I'm pretty scared of making a
0: fool of myself in social situations. Um... What what are you scared of?
1: Um, um I think with me, um, yeah, I I don't like to like. I had this discussion with a mate last night. Actually, he was a chef, and it's like, it, the older you get, the harder it is for you to have people around you see that you don't know what you're doing. Right. Um, you know, so it, like being, if I was to go with my girlfriend and this is why I haven't ever gone skiing like because the skiing strikes us 100 married though not yeah wife yeah <laughs> oh man did you see the uh, you haven't seen that clip of this Australian AFL player who at the end of the game is being interviewed and he says oh I just really want to thank my wife and my girlfriend and he's like <laughs> yes is what he said and he's like oh no no, no I, I mean my wife I love my wife I love my wife so much and he just goes it's just like, oh my god he's just digging himself further in yeah um, but anyway I've never taken a partner of mine to go skiing because a ski instructor is 100% going to sleep with your girlfriend because you're going to look like an idiot the whole right. time and they're going to look great um, right so, so you know that, that, that type of situation where you're put into something where you really don't know what you're doing um, by the same token you have to do that you know in life um, so the big change
0: for me it's, so I used to be quite uh, so my mum says I was born extrovert and then I got you know, it's not a big sub story, but I got badly bullied at school and I became a very introverted, very quiet person. And then I became quite embittered as a teenager. I was quite angry at the world for all that. And um, and then I went to uni and basically uni was really good. Obviously, more than anything, it would forget that I learned about, you know, biorhythms and circadian rhythms, all that crap, because I did sports science. It was basically I learnt to be a grown-up to a reasonable degree. And what I learned was everyone has shit. Everyone has been through something to some degree. Almost, you could see that if they haven't, they're going to, because it just statistically makes sense. And and then the where I really grew up was when I realised that I was meeting people in Manchester when I was in clubbing and helping run a club there. That I was meeting people who'd been through way worse shit, way 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 worse shit than I had, and. We're making something of their lives, and basically, it was my choice. The world doesn't owe you anything. There isn't some benevolent, I don't, I'm a total atheist, and but not an aggressive atheist, you know, I find religions fascinating. But I think that there isn't some malevolent God who's saying, Oh, you've had a hard time, so here's some extra points.
2: No,
0: it, no. It, everyone's got their shit, so. You know, um, you just, I've just spotted the amount of hair that Lily's put on your black jeans. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's quite all right. Um, but cool. um, so I, I thought I'd better crack on. And in that instant, in, within months, I'd met my partner of 23 mm-hmm. years, Emma Lou, because I became a positive, go getting person. And so since then, I've always, you know, that cliche of feel the fear and do it anyway is incredibly important because fear is such, such, mostly such bullshit. Yeah, um, and I just see so many people, unfortunately, including people close to me, who've just been crushed and held back by fear. And it just—it's not necessarily that easy.
1: But you just got to put that foot in front. Yeah, yeah. It's a—it's uh, it's a tricky thing. I think you know, if you, if you sort of, if you, it can be hard to push yourself. You know, it can be really hard. You know, because as an adult, you just don't need to do stuff. Like I, I was always a a terrible swimmer. And... this usually are. Uh, but I, I told myself, like, no, I am a bad swimmer. Right. And I thought about it one day. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Like, I can't physically be a bad swimmer. Mm. I thought back to it and like, when I was a little, little kid, I think we were at the swimming pool and I fell in, fell in or went under for quite a long time. And what felt like forever. Mm. Mum came and got me. Mum was upstairs actually in a cafe and the lifeguard who was giving the swim lessons hadn't noticed me going. Sure. And she was like... Um, and like, I just never liked swimming. So then I didn't mm. do it. I thought back and I'm like, like, I've stopped myself being better at swimming basically by telling myself I'm not good at it. Why do I tell myself I'm not good at it? It's because I don't do it. Right. So it's like, right, just make yourself go swimming. Of course you can swim. Mm. Like, mm. you know, you don't lack anything. Well, I
0: always think if they if they can do it, I must be able to do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's that, that's a really good attitude. And it's easy to say, you know, when you're sat around going, oh, yeah. But like, it's, it's a lot harder to do, you know.
0: I, I, one of the scariest parts of my life is, is be, about to become a parent. It's interesting because I just had friends, Kirsten and Stu, round just before you, you came and um, they, they are expecting their second child. And I can remember the terror of about to be a father because I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? I don't know what to do. And, you know, and then all that me and Emily used to say was,
1: if billions of other people mm. have done it, surely we should be able to do it, yeah. <laughs> you know we've got our first one coming in August oh wow it's like, yeah it's like basically in the situation where I keep sending to Georgia exactly the same thing I'm like this happens all the time it's the most natural thing in the world that people do it it's the intensity of it yeah that, that's yeah. what it is it's uh yeah, it's going to be interesting wow so she must be quite big now just, just getting big I think like like a month ago she wouldn't you barely would have noticed right now and now she's just no I didn't notice when I met her a yeah. few weeks ago so. yeah she, I mean she's she she's still got a bit to go, I think. Unfortunately, are you um, ex- excited, nervous? Yeah, excited, really excited. Um, I think um, it's it's interesting because it's a, So I'm 38 and Georgia's she's 33. She's by no means old, and and these days it's I think more and more common people. Oh, she's almost age. young now by most standards in the UK, yeah. But we've had sort of ten years more. Of like good quality living, addicted mm. to our freedom and disposable income. Instead of doing it the other way around as as my sort of parents' generation did it, which was like you're twenty something, mm. you have kids, you've got no money, and then eventually like
0: At thirty eight, yeah. suddenly your kids are leaving.
1: Yeah. Which is yeah. mad to think of now. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you've got your time to do what basically we've been doing for the last ten years. Um, so that's it's it's gonna be interesting because I mean, I think both of us will be, you know, committed to bringing, giving the kid what it needs, you know, um, but also trying to work out a way where the the kid doesn't become the only thing, you know. You've got to
0: stay who you are. Yeah. And it is really easy to get that that can almost get subsumed into the sort of yeah. super machine of the the baby. You know? Yeah.
1: It's a. Uh, it's. I see it. You know, uh, when people sort of have kids and then it's like, they just shut down. And like, yeah, just, here's the kid, look, and it's just like, all just looking at this kid. It's like, a kid just thinks that it is the, you know.
0: A, a kid will absorb what it is given to absorb. So, so, so it, everyone gives you advice about being a parent. It's really interesting, you know, your, so I became a dad at 39, and um, so me and Emily we've been together at that point, I suppose we have been together for, what 20, 17 years, most of which in London. We'd have very good incomes most of the time, mm. not always, I had a lot of fun, lot, both very independent people, mm. al- always enjoyed time away from each other and together, and very urban, you know, really enjoying our culture, going out, you know, just doing yeah. stuff. And, I, 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 and then to an extent, I, I sort of either really... Well timed or badly timed, everything was very. We're always real planners, so we planned when we were going to have a child. And to our amazement, we had a child quite easily because I know so many couples have found it difficult. Mm. Like most of my friends have probably had to go through IVF, have right. either been successful or not successful, and the horrors that come with that because IVF is you know, it's yeah. grim. And I'm sure we all know people, and so we would definitely not presume would be able to have kids. I couldn't believe that we were pregnant, you know. And, um, but we very clearly planned that and then I'd started my first business and it was very intense and basically conceived Miller my son on the day that we launched Volpine which is I'm sure there's lots of psychological (laughs) stuff you can dig into that and then you know he was born in the beginning of Volpine and um so so these two babies essentially and I it actually makes you feel a bit sick talking about it now as Volpine was my second baby because that's Total bullshit. It's a really facile way of looking at things, and especially when you realise it's just a business. It was clearly more than that to me at the time, which is good and bad, but but these two things happening, suddenly your world just shuts down. It's basically two parts of my world. That is, I have a baby, and I have a business, and I've got to split my time between those two things, and I haven't said anything about personal interests, Mm. my wife, cycling, anything like that, and there wasn't really room for that, and so luckily I had a business that was very much me, so I could sort of live out my independence through that, but um, I think it was particularly hard for MLU and it's often hard for, for mums if they're at home, because you can feel your self sort of being diluted mm. by the intensity, of just the drudgery of, especially a very young baby, and you're mm. very tired mm. I think that's why I you know, apart from hormonal reasons, why a lot of mums have postnatal depression because suddenly it's like well shit all i am is a i'm just this machine that wipes and yeah, cleans feeds and feeds and cleans, you know? yeah so it's i think the biggest help sorry from a as a father is to try and
1: balance that almost yeah it's the, that's an interesting one i mean i think with with my job it's going to get it's hard it you your because you're places. away a lot i guess yeah so i do I, I'm, I'm away for not too much of the time. But when I do go away, like I mean, obviously we do a grand tour. That's through, that's basically four weeks for us um, on on the sort of non rider side because um, we're there for a bit longer. I Assume you're not doing the tour of Spain. No, no, not this year. At <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I think I, I've got a tour of Britain after after she's born, mm. and then um, which which is a week, which is kind of like okay, but I think. Um, yeah uh, at the start of the year in January I'm away for a month with the Tour Down Under and various races and so on and so forth so that's a harder time but I think you know for, we're really lucky in Bristol and I think Bristol's a great city like we've got really good friends there everything's really close and uh, it's quite it's quite a good sense of community in Bristol um, and there's a lot of people around um, so you know I, I think
0: you've got to live your life i think this, is, this goes back to your original point is you've got to be who you are and i think also it sounds like your your job you get time on and off in quite big chunks yeah so that's also has its own advantages because you know rather than the classic thing which is basically doing the nine-to-five traveling you know and not being around and being there for bedtime and feeds at night you know you could actually be there for quite significant chunks yeah. as well as not being there so that's a sort of you know a different mix and quite frankly in a way as long as you're not doing anything bad then you, you've got to do what you do yeah
1: yeah no I think you know it, it would be great because like you said being at home actually at home when I'm at home I'm at home and that, that, that's really nice so and she had to give up her work so, George, so my wife's Australian, and she works sort of for her family business in Australia, but she does that sort of from our house in England. How long has she been here for? Ten years, nine years. All right. so, so, you met in the UK. We, you know, we go backwards and forwards every year. All right. So, we've got a house um, here, and then we go and we stay in. Um, we've got a house in Melbourne. So that's something else I, I noticed when I met you is you have quite a sort of southern
0: hemisphere accent. Yes. That's my... Uh, so you're from, from Cornwall?
1: From Penzance, originally. Um, I went there for holiday last summer. I s- loved it. Penzance has uh, gone downhill a little bit these days, unfortunately. In what respect? Um, it's the end of the train line. And I think people get on the train and get off down there with nowhere else to go. Um, there's a lot of... Um, I think it's like the highest sort of methadone um, per capita, users Jeez. per capita in, in Britain. Um, Still a nice place. Right. Um, I just mean the town itself. I
0: think I, I, I don't usually do much research when I do podcasts, either because I know the person already. In your case, I, I didn't. But I don't like to have preconceived ideas. Um, and I like, I, I'm interested in the fact of just picking stuff up in the ether. But I did read that, you know, you love riding around
1: the roads around yeah, Cornwall. It's my yeah, I, I, I They're like pretty the full mountains. on. They're hard. But, there's, I mean, there's one particular loop that I do that goes sort of Penzance to Land's End and then back along the coast mm-hmm. road to St. Ives through Zennor to St. Ives mm. um, which I is, did that last summer yeah, yeah it's lovely it's amazing it, and nice. the fog that comes in all the time and I used to do it twice when I was training it, it would take me about the full thing I could do it in five hours if I did it twice and I, I, I did it three weeks straight so one day I could do it one way one day <laughs> do it the next day but like when you're next to the sea it changes every day right like it's never the same yeah um, and, and you, when you're along that coast road you're just looking out and it's like you can see rain showers miles i away. did a,
0: did a climb i didn't even realize i was doing it until i was doing it otherwise i probably would have avoided it it was coming out of Mausol, and yep. or mouse holders. Yep. You, yeah Mousel. yeah and uh, it's, i think it's climbed the west out of mausle it's incredibly steep i know the one and i was doing it and people were literally looking at me going you're joking you're going to do this and I really hate steep climbs. Or I did until I moved here and Bath is very similar, it's very steep around here. And um and I've sort of just learnt to just grind away and get them done. But I can remember thinking you know, on this climb, don't be psyched out, just keep on going, keep <laughs> on going. You've got to finish you've got to, all these tourists are looking at you, you've got to do it. Um you know, and I'd styled it out or not, as
1: the case may be. Uh, I I I love it. I mean the thing is they're so short there that like they're steep but they're going to end quickly mm. and then like you can recover and then do it again so going so something i've had a little compartment the back of my head for
0: 20 minutes is about your team and about its attitude to making mistakes essentially and about realness so something i was really affected by last summer was when a rider, a canadian rider called rusty woods um he 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 lost his baby
2: mm, yeah. and
0: he mentioned that when he, he did he win a stage win stages or, of well to yeah. yeah so and, and I ended up in tears and I think a lot of people were really affected by that and it, it made me think I thought I think one of the aspects is simply because the thought of having losing a child is, is such a horrific and intense thought for most people obviously parents um, and it's very very relatable but the other thing is it's quite shocking to hear that in cycling mm. to hear any sort of personal stuff like like something I've talked to journalists in cycling about in the past, just in passing, is I could the only gay cyclist I can think of, who's a man, there's plenty of out gay women, but only gay, I'm not, I'm not fishing at all, but what I'm fascinated by and shocked and horrified by it, is the only awareness of any gay cyclist ever is Graham Mowbray, mm. who, who was really fucked up by denying mm. that to himself, and not being able to talk about it, and now he's openly gay. And I just think there have to be gay cyclists. But we're not hearing about, not because we should do, not because we should be forcing people to talk about that, because there has to be some sort of barrier, you know, toxic barrier to that.
1: Yeah, I, I think... Um, I was actually um, watching the Eurosport coverage of the Euro the other day, and Bradley Wiggins was talking, and he was talking about how, how, how basically... He, he summed it up really well about how you you basically you're putting on a suit of armour every day and, mm. and you don't want to show any weakness mm. like the whole mm. of cycling is you not showing any weakness now uh, I think that anything I think that cycling is quite close minded and anything out of the ordinary it's a very traditional sport anything out of the ordinary showing any weakness showing you're different in any way um, would be seen as would be seen wrongly uh, As kind of like a, maybe not by everybody else, but maybe by the individual, as like um, something to pick at, or not so much to pick at. Um, It's 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 strange because you do spend a lot of time feeling like you have to defend yourself. You know, like um, for whoever you are, and and that doesn't sound like a very good. No, I don't think it is. And, and, and cycling's so, I mean, it's changing now, but it, 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 was, it was such a small-minded, like, shitty sort of boys club, you know? Um, less and less so, like, as, as, as more and more sort of nations and different types of people have, have broke, broken their way in. But, you know, in the 80s, when it was just sort of this tiny little European sport, Although I must,
0: well, it must have been on in terms of soccer, compared to soccer, it was massive. But for us, because for me, tiny in the UK, it was, UK it was tiny. It was a kind of almost like a joke sport. Whereas in Europe, it's huge.
1: Yeah, when I, when I say tiny, I mean um, when you think of the pool of people that were doing it. Okay, yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it, it was really small. So you've got like a like a a really sort of s- strong identity for what a cyclist is. Mm-hmm based on very few ingredients right um kind of 200 people almost yeah Uh, uh, and then that's sort of that's it and it, it, it was so hard to break in that everybody like i think just sort of stopped trying to do it their own way just like said all right okay these are the fucking rules let's just get along with it and get them done there's
0: such a weight of expectation and tradition and you know you're trying so hard and everything else that why fight against
1: the system yeah so so why you know but now it's changing the sport's changing I think the world's changing I mean it is it's a a different place Um, like quote me you know correct me if I'm wrong but I remember being a young kid and going I wonder if there's any gay football players yeah. because you just didn't know about him. like you know and I think cycling is just sort of Do you back. Ever remember what happened to Justin Fashning? Um so he was a foreign
0: yes. I remember because he was a Forest player and I'm from Nottingham so I support Nottingham Forest and um yeah he basically Cluffy bullied him really badly his own brother was awful to him um John Fashning and he topped himself. Yes, yeah, I do remember. And, he, and Essentially, that's hung
1: over football for decades since mm. and sport I guess mm. well, it should do I mean that's tragic and I think you know uh, I think I, I think with, with sort of like cycling's getting like a a wider it's getting more aware um it's okay to be you know yourself now I mean look at um athletes now you know riders are completely different they don't feel like they have to conform to this mm-hmm. or that you know especially in our team you know our guys come yeah perform. well
0: you're the definition
1: of that yeah uh, take a guy like you know Mike Woods who goes for a run on a rest day like oh really not, no not on a rest day but like when he's at home like he might go and I mean his and, next and run, that would have been like sacrilege it, it, would, <laughs> it, it would blow people's minds right like what the hell is this guy you can't do that he can. He gets along just fine. You know. He's doing uh, alright Yeah. <laughs> so you know, all, all, all those little things are starting to change. Taylor you? Finney is a
0: very strong personality.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: it, there's a lot of per- different yeah. personalities in there, and um, and that really shows. And I'm really fascinated by this because I think that. So for instance, I see in. You know the British riders. I've always seen quite an intellectual bunch. Not necessarily like a real thinky, bookish bunch, but so like Wiggins is a really intelligent bloke, um, and and Grant Thomas really funny, intelligent. And 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 it's interesting because when I grew up, I, it was defined as work cycling as I'm a I'm a soft, uh, lower middle class um, sort of bookish, thoughtful. Man and boy as well, and and suddenly I'm trying to get into a very tough, almost brutal working class sport. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt in the mid eighties mm-hmm. when I started. And part of the reason I was so determined to do that is because I wanted to prove to myself I could do it because it was so completely different from everything that I was. And um, and I think maybe one of the reasons it took me a while to get accepted because I was from where I grew up in, in Nottinghamshire. I was quite posh. I sounded mm-hmm. posh, even though I mm-hmm. wasn't. And um, and of course it's shifted now. And of course in Britain you have this weird thing that cycling is seen as is a is a
1: middle class expensive sport. Look at the price point of entry. Right. It's it's insane. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen it turn fully on its head, as you know, as have you, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of really strange. Um, I think it. I, th- I think it will do more and more in Europe like that sort of traditional it's a you know it's a way out it, it's a way out it's kind of going um, I, th- I think the South Americans still have that yeah you know you see that with these young kids from you know uh, Colombia and different um, sort of South American countries they are they're not joking man mm.
0: you know? it's not a vocation
1: nah. I, it's I, I, I desperation I we had when we, when we were racing we were racing against like um, in, in 2009 mm-hmm. we were racing against this um the iranian team and like there's this notorious team from iran it's tabriz petrochemical okay and um they've raced on the asian circuit quite a lot and i did a few sort of races of this that's like you know um tour japan and all these tours in china and stuff and they and they win absolutely everything for whatever reason they're they're winning you know um All these guys that I knew kind of sat back and went, oh yeah, they're just cheating. They're just beating us because they're cheating. And it's like, right, okay, they might be. But actually, the reason they're beating you guys is, Mm. these guys are like 32, 33-year-old men Mm. who are racing for their lives still. Like, 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 we're just a bunch of 25-year-old, 26-year-old blokes who kind of do this because it's, you know.
0: It's like living a fantasy.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we we were in no way desperate to be at those races to be or to be like taking that prize money it's like you get that prize money it's like plus minus go and buy yourself something nice
2: mm-hmm.
1: whereas these guys you could see and it's like they're just hard hungry hungry people totally different um from from a different background and different situation and, and when you're back to the
0: wall you your physiology your yeah. psychology is completely different
1: yeah I, I, I just remember feeling like just this like spoiled brat really you know because you didn't as much as you wanted to do well you didn't need to do well mm. you know
0: yeah. um, so what do you want to so what would you so, so what I'm really interested in is your writing because I'm really interested in creativity and it's the first thing that I saw so I was particularly interested in you with uh, so I, I read your, your book you did um uh did you ghost that or was it a sort of official thing mm. uh, so I've forgotten his name oh, Charlie,
1: Charlie. Vigelius yeah. who, who I now course. work with um, he's also a sports director at EF um, so I, I mean I, I, I wrote it basically I mean a co-writer would be probably the most accurate right. um, but for whatever reason that didn't go in the official title. Um,
0: but yeah and would you, so, so everyone always wants to do other stuff in their lives so um, what I want to do is I want to ride around Japan nice. <laughs> on my bicycle you know bikes have always been a big part of my life and I don't cycle enough and um, I would love to do a lot more cooking especially Asian cooking mm. it's little things I think I'm able to do a great deal in my life you know, um, that, uh, and I'm very lucky. Although, <laughs> I could go off on one about creating your own luck and, you know, I've earned all this and all this kind of stuff. But, but that's, that's great that I've got, basically, I'm married, I'm in love, I've got kids, you know, I've got a house, I've got a business, I've got a bike I can ride, you know, it's pretty fucking amazing. Yep. Uh, and when, and so two years ago when I had a breakdown and my business went bust, I kept telling myself, I'm unbelievably lucky. You know, I do not have to worry about my children's health and dying of horrible diseases. I do not need to worry about the social system catching me, even if it's not as good as it used to be. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so and I'm white and, you know, in the UK and that affords me specific advantages that I didn't earn. And so I should be really fucking grateful. Even though chemically at the time you don't feel like that because you can't feel like that it's not your fault if you feel like shit. So here's an important point about depression is um, something I didn't fully recognise until I had depression a couple of years ago is that you don't get to choose that there isn't logic. Um, logic can help in a. Pr- aggressively helping you feel better, you know, putting things into context, but when you have a very depressed person, particularly potentially even suicidal, you can't just say, hey, come on, mate, I mean, fucking hell, it's not that bad, because it's chemistry, you know, it, it, you can't just weigh it up uh, and make someone feel better and sort of give them a slap around the face and say, for fuck's sake... Jesus, look at you know, yourself. And you know, people are always amazed and shocked and sometimes disgusted that famous people, very rich people, um, kill themselves You know, in, in the media. And they think, well, he had everything. It doesn't matter. It's not about that. You could argue, of course, money doesn't buy happiness, but that's a separate argument. Anyone can be depressed. Uh, it, it is not their fault. Uh, and so if you've never been depressed, please don't judge people and think, oh, they're just, being, they're just you know, selfish or asking for more and more. And for God's sake, you know, it is a chemical thing that's happened to them. And they need help to get out of it. They cannot see the logic. I could not see the logic. I knew where the logic was. I knew what the logical arguments were, but I couldn't help the way I felt. Um, I think that's an important thing to say. Hopefully that was not too inexpertly expressed. Would you love to be able to be doing? I'm sort of nudging ads, writing. <laughs> right, <laughs> if yeah, you could yeah. do other things, because you've got a busy
1: yeah. life. Yeah, I do. I mean, like since I started doing this job at this level, it's 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 really knocked the writing on the head. Right. Because I'm just not in that um, creative headspace at all right. anymore. And it's like a it's like a muscle. You stop exercising it. It's mm. like now if I sit down to do something. So I was doing like bits and pieces for magazines, but it was taking me so long to get something done
0: you've got to restart the engine
1: yeah because I was so and I was never happy with what I was doing whereas when I was writing I used to try and do like a thousand words a day whether they got published whether they went on a blog or whatever mm-hmm. just because it's like right that's you that, that, that that's your exercise mm-hmm. kind of thing and then it, it flowed much easier um, I, I love writing I think I mean good writing is just clear thinking right hmm. so what I had when I was writing was the the, the time in the day to put my thoughts in order as I wanted to explain them. Um, I used to do, the way that it worked for me with writing was I, let's say I got given um, uh, a commission to write for a, a, a piece about something, I'd get all that information for whatever I was writing about, I'd look at it, go to bed, get up. 8 o'clock in the morning go for a bike ride and at some point during that bike ride I some a sentence would come into my head mm-hmm. in, in shape mm-hmm. and you go right okay that's what I'm going to hang it all on and then I go home and start working mm. um and I obviously like being on the bike basically just it's like you know people might go and might get in the shower that's another place where you just get ideas because doing the dishes because you switch yeah. off and you start doing something it, it's so autumn I mean, I've ridden a bike for God knows how long 25 years or something so it's so automatic to me your brain's got a bit of time to think and I love that like that's my like I, I really really enjoyed doing that um, and I, you know if I kind of think to myself you know if if, if if I had all the money in the world what would I do yeah um, and I, my life would probably be pretty similar <laughs> you know um, I, I've met a lot of really rich people and they don't seem outrageously happy to me. No, no. I mean... It, it How much further can you get? You it, know? Yeah, it, it depends we, what you have to do to get it, doesn't it? You know? Mm.
0: Well, I know now that if I wanted to grow a, a, a very fast-growing, very big, multinational corporation, I would basically have to give up most of the rest of my life. Mm. Entrepreneur divorce rates, you know, breakdown rates, all this mm. kind of stuff are extremely high because everyone thinks that being an entrepreneur is this extremely glamorous life because they look at jeff bezos and you know and he would have sacrificed a lot uh and they just think oh it's so riding around in jets eating sushi and hanging out on yachts and that's an incredibly small number of people probably also the same very successful pro cyclists. um it's a tiny fraction and at the time i was obsessed with i've got to find out if i can do it and I found out I can't do it, and that's okay with me. And actually, I'm quite, pretty happy with that. Now, what I'm trying to find out is if I can create a business that supports my family yep. so I don't have to do the thing that I've always been bad at, which is working within a corporate environment, you know, um, because I think, like you, I, I don't like rules. Not because I want to break them, but because quite often they're wrong. Mm-hmm. There's always a different way of doing something. And I'm just too independent, I think. What I really like doing is helping people, uh, because I would really like people to understand that you know being an entrepreneur is pretty hard and you shouldn't do it unless you're prepared for X, Y, Z. Z. So I like that aspect, but um, and that's both you know it's the mind thing or whatever. But I think yeah, if I was, in, I I think I often say to Emily, we are rich by a sort of classic British definition of rich. I'm not rich. I live a nice middle class life, but um, but I'm not like worth tens of millions. If I was worth tens of millions, what would I do? I would like to think that the thing I really want to do, the thing I fantasize about that I can't do, is I would go and live in a hut on top of a mountain in Norway, and I'd write a book. I'd just ride my bike and write a book. That's all I'd do. Uh, You know, with nobody. I wouldn't see anyone for months. I'd do some press-ups, and I'd have this sort of monk-like attitude to exercise and to um, writing, to creativity and exercise. They're they're two things I I love. Mm And I would end up missing... Because I don't always miss my kids and my wife all the time. I do often, but I'm quite independent as well. But I would end up really, really missing my family and be extremely happy to see them again. And it would be another sort of recentering of my life and then I'd probably never do that again. That would just be like, I've itched that scratch,
1: but it's a scratch that's been there for about eight years. So it must mean something. Yeah. Yeah, writing a book's an interesting one. I mean, it's, it's it's incredibly isolating. That's one thing I found hard about writing. I think you've
0: got to have isolation by the sounds
1: of things. Yeah, I, I find it hard about about writing, um, which is like, you know, it, it completely isolates you. And then, it, especially being a freelance writer, you, you end up, like, always working, so you're never out doing anything, so you're never living. So you've, you, you've got less and less... Um, uh, l- less and less life to kind of put into it mm. so what makes interesting it, writing is the way that you know you might see something or you might have been somewhere or done something mm. um, and see things not just kind of like read about them and talk about them f- from this like from sitting in your sort of office um, which is hard you you have to do enough living to to write well um, but then you have to be totally isolated when you actually come to doing the writing mm. so you know, it's, uh, it's it's contradiction. Yeah, it is. It is. So you know, pe- people who manage to make like a successful living out of out of writing, sort of creatively, and and living well, that's uh, that's that's incredible. Right. But I mean, those are the you know the ones all the way up tiny here. So few far between. I um
0: I think the the least worst writing I've done some writing just blogs and stuff, and I wrote a blog. It was supposed to be a blog for the Volpine website and then I ran it past Peter Walker of The Guardian and he said I'd like to put this on The Guardian website. And I kind of knew that it, for me it was quite well written. And But the reason I think it was good is because I've long, held, had, long had this um, very strong middle opinion about helmets and cycling so mm. so in cycling helmets are a toxic issue mm. and you know people get shouted at each other on Twitter about you should wear a helmet you know we don't need to wear a helmet and all this kind of stuff and you know there's a big change pro cycling about wearing helmets and stuff and basically my view about so, so I developed this very clear view th- about helmets and, and that was Why are we shouting at each other about this stuff? You know, and but but usually what happens, you know, in a world of clickbait and the media is that you've got sides. And I think we could talk about how this has changed the world and it's fucking up politics and all this kind of stuff. And it's true, you know, everything's polarizing because that's how the media works. That's how social media works. And actually I'd much rather be in the middle. I like the middle. I like the compromise space because that's a fair and it's a kind and a decent space rather than just saying, this is my opinion, fuck you. This is why I'm sitting and I'm gonna stay, you know, because that's a terrible attitude. Anyway, so with helmets, my attitude is I wear a helmet because most of the time I'm riding around and potentially going quite quickly or whatever and I have I used to race and so I just feel weird not wearing a helmet. I've also not worn a helmet on a road ride and thought it was pretty nice because it just feels mm. quite free. So I'm not gonna judge anyone. I would never do what I've seen people do is on a road ride, see a guy with a helmet and go, well, you're a dick, you should be wearing a helmet because it's his life. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of the scale, um, I, despite being quite a creative, emotive, per, emotional person, I, I like logic. And the logic states that if a huge number of people give up cycling because they don't like yep. wearing helmets, as has happened in Australia, Australian cycling's dropped because they brought in compulsory helmets, then we're killing people. 110 people die cycling in the UK every year, roughly, every year, which is a terrible thing. But hundreds of thousands of people die every year from sedentary lifestyles.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had this exact, you know, I'm of a similar opinion to yourself. And I've, you know, um, I've, I mean, I've ridden for years without a helm. I I never never trained in one when I was racing, Mm. ever. Um, I wear one, you know, now if I go off road if I go in a group if I'm riding with people I don't know but often if I go for a ride I just won't wear one if I ride around town I will never wear one Um, and I had this discussion with an Australian police officer when um, Hmm. my wife and I a few years ago were riding from my house to the beach which was about approximately 600 metre ride Um, and the policeman sort of saw me yelled at us to come over to him and said you know asked me what I thought I was doing and I (laughs) he <laughs> um, said, "Oh well, why I didn't have a helmet on?" I said, "I fundamentally disagree with helmet laws," and he got really angry with me and started yelling at me. Um, Saw that as challenge to his authority. He, he, he started yelling at me about kids and like emotive language about um. you know about like so throwing kids throwing kids in there and, mm. and just throwing this like emotional stuff about. So like, okay, but like you know, I'd, I'd rather these kids that you know who who are doing everything that I do, because obviously that that must be what they're doing, Um, saw myself and my wife, two healthy adults, riding from our house to the beach. A safe pastime, Mm. Um, you know, we're responsible, healthy adults, you know, doing something which is, I think, um, safe, it's something which, you know, I would enc- I would want people to see and, and want to do, um, you know, environmentally friendly, all uh, this and that, that, you know. And the guy just could not take it, could not take it. So he fined both of us $180 because um, poor Georgia, he said, do you agree with him? And she's like, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and then he wrote me a letter um, saying wow. about how how his wife had fallen off her bike and she'd hit her helmet, which had broken, um, and undoubtedly that saved her life.
0: Which is anecdotal. Which is. May or may not be true,
1: but we'll never know. Absolute bollocks. We, I mean, anyway. So I wrote him a letter back, quite long, um, explaining. It's ex, Explaining my viewpoint. Um, and I put a lot of thought into it because over the years I've had the opportunity to put a, a lot of thought into you know because I did did the old RAFA campaigns when we we didn't have to wear helmets I didn't wear them and people complained at me and at RAFA Um, they used to complain
0: that was the only shit that Volpine ever got was not wearing helmets
1: yeah Um, you are promoting unsafe cycling yeah I, I remember responding to something um And I think Rafa actually took it and used it as their stock response for...
0: Yes, I've um, read it. that's one of the reasons I remember wanting to get in touch because I can remember reading that and going, nailed
1: it, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I I feel quite strongly about it. Um, You know, like, the the thing that kind of boils down to with me and, like, this policeman kind of... They sent it back saying this, this police, like, he's on holiday so he can't accept the letter. So obviously the guy just didn't want to deal with it. But it's like... There was no room in anyone's head um, for keeping for having two ideas alive at once. Yes. So, do I do I believe in wearing in, in helmets? Yes, I do. They can they, they can save your life. Hmm. Do I do I always wear one? No. Hmm. Right. Okay. Like, that's okay. Y- you can have two ideas going at once. There can be two ideas. It doesn't have to be this or this. It's this cementing of
0: opinions that I think that, that scares me, whether it's helmets, you know, whether it's tire wits in cycling or pressures or, you know, it's amazing the things that people get upset about. And you go out into a wider world. And so, so I'm, I used to be a big fan of Twitter and I've really, really gone off it and I find it quite hard sometimes because Twitter seems to be a place that people with strongly held opinions fire opinions at people, mm. you know, and they have this armor so that those opinions don't come back. And what I've taken pleasure in in the past is being incredibly reasonable and nice about things that seem really offensive. Like, you know, uh, very rarely now, actually, because everyone realises you just just tried the best, I occasionally get someone on Twitter saying, yeah, fuck you, what about all those Volpine shareholders? And I go, look, I'll have a chat with you about it, but not to see if you're going to be anonymous, you're going to be sweary and and rude. I'll talk talk all about it. It's not a problem um, because nothing to have a problem about but if you're going to be a dick you know i will be open-minded maybe you're right about some stuff
2: Mm.
0: maybe but we're not going to get that opportunity because you've immediately gone in hard and also something that really pissed me off is anonymity which is cowardice Mm. um and you know you'll have had some I, i haven't seen any but you'll no doubt have had some stuff you know uh EF and it's other sort of guys this is Garmin and before that you know uh, with, with Jonathan Fouters I see he gets stuff you know about doping and about zero tons. all these cars wherever you are in whatever sphere of life there's, somebody's getting some shit for something yeah and, and I think that's created Trump mm-hmm. and it's created Brexit and mm-hmm. because the world the media is now
1: about uh, contrast it's just who shouts loudest yeah doesn't matter what, if what you're saying is true or not you know, you can just say, what well, y- y-
0: the validity of everyone has an opinion and, and this thing about, well, hang about So people say, yeah, but you know, fucking experts, you know, what do they know? And you go, you know what? I don't, so somebody said to me, so this thing about elites, so I get into politics, talk about this for ages, we're going to have to polish off soon, but basically, so, so I've got this fundamental problem with people talking about elites. We shouldn't keep giving it to the elites. Mm. So for me, If someone's elite, if you're an elite cyclist, you're the best cyclist, you're you're in the cream of cyclists, you have got to that position, you've worked towards it, you have earned it. If you're an elite academic, you know more about a subject than I do. If you're an elite um, medieval historian, I am unlikely to have much to offer in terms of opinion on medieval history. So I'm going to go to you and ask your opinion. Now, I will also keep in mind that you will have your own biases about mm-hmm. medieval history. And I want to speak to another medieval historian to see what they think about the Enlightenment or whatever. You know. so, so you've always got to keep an own mind. You've got to have a level of cynicism. So I want elites to run my country. I want really clever, really well-educated people to do things that I'm not good at but at the moment it seems like no we should let every man do that and you go no but every man isn't qualified
1: I mean you, <laughs> I don't know if you would have seen there was a cartoon I can't quite remember the wording basically of people on a plane just saying what well, does this pilot know he's like you know he's the elite and there's like a will fight that <laughs> kind of thing it's like yeah but you know he's there for a reason like he knows what he's doing mm. uh, I think it's it's totally true there's this just this kind of idea that um uh, these elite, they're, they're screwing us over. But yeah, I mean, also like... It's also true that some elites have screwed of course, over but like, people. Uh, I mean, that's been going on for forever.
0: Some segment of humanity in whatever position is being a dick at some point. There are dick cyclists, dick motorists, dick politicians, but yeah. there's also very, very kind and good and decent cyclists and motorists and politicians and tennis players and cooks and anything yeah. else. And the problem is, you know with going back to cycling is that you know cyclists get tarred with the brush of a certain set of people who do dick things and we're seeing and because that stays in the memory if you're in a car and you're not a cyclist and you see cyclists doing stupid stuff you think that's what cyclists do Mm. because that's the way unfortunately most human brains work is you need to make have generalisms you have to have rules so that you can make decisions you know I got food poisoning from eating oysters so I'll never eat oysters again yeah I've seen a cyclist, you know, my wife, when we arrived in London, got hit by a cycle courier who went through a red light and she, she really hurt her hip and she had to go to hospital and stuff like that. And being a cyclist, I didn't think, fuck you all cyclists, I hate yeah. you all. I just thought, he's a dick.
1: Yeah.
0: But if I hadn't been a cyclist, would I have thought, oh, fucking cyclists. now I'm going to have a thing about him. Yeah. And so we've just got to have a little bit more sort of... We've got to step back and go, it, we've lost the ability to just measure things and find a middle ground, and I just I don't know how we're going to get it back, basically.
1: It's careering off in a very dangerous, very, very dangerous direction, in my opinion. And I, I look at it, I mean, I've completely given up on. Um, I mean, Facebook I just got rid of because I just... Mm. I, I hate it, and Twitter I just don't use... Um, I, I just, you know, every now and again, like I'll read, you know, I will read an article on, it's like a, a cycling website or something. I will read, you know, you see comments people talking about these, these kids that I work with, mm. like just saying this like ridiculous stuff about them. Got they're no just human idea. beings. They're just, they're just kids, yeah. you know, like doing the absolute best they can, mm. and uh, it's uh, you, you read these opinions. F- first thought is like why are you letting this matter to you right like, why, why do you have to say this I think it's jealousy yeah on a simplistic level yeah yeah but it's can't people recognise that like I mean to have to, to have conversation about sport is correct because that's what it's there for it's fun to talk about yeah. stuff and, I mean people you know on the terraces you go to Bristol City and you hear like you know what people are talking about about this player or that player mm. and it's like okay that's that's part of it and the athletes get paid and so they you could call it banter I guess yeah they get paid because they're in a position to to kind of take that right and they know it's going to happen but like what I see now like being written down and like because these guys can read it too you know like they they read out I've
0: seen bonkers stuff written about me absolutely yes. and you Mm. think somebody somewhere believes that yeah and then you think well actually what I've learned is does it matter? You know, and, and I'm really not that well-known. I'm not, I'm not in a public sphere. I mean, I was somewhat known within a very small sort of cycling sphere. And I've seen stuff and, you know, occasionally, you know, you see something. Somebody texts you, your mate says, oh, have you seen what say? Somebody says so-and-so, and you go. And two years ago, when you're having a breakdown, it matters to mm. you because you've got no defenses. It means an enormous amount. Whereas now, I just think, it's pity. Mm. I feel pity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, when, you know, back when Charlie and I got into trouble for the World Championships years ago, it's 2005. So the background to that, because I read the book, is basically that you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you rode for the Italian team. I mean, our, we basically used the interests, um, our interests and their interests and... and sort Formed an alliance. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. Um, it, it happened a lot and still does happen. Yeah. Uh, in it's a very way. political yeah. system, cycling. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I remember some of the people saying some of the stuff, you know, what people were saying. Oh, it's vicious. I, I still do now, you know, like... People still say stuff now to like to Charlie or myself, and it's like, D- did that affect you in any way? And it, it maybe it did, maybe they, were, you know, lost a part of their innocence or, or, or whatever it was. Um, but man,
0: come on. Um, I think it goes back to the thing is whether we think them as. You know, some things are mistakes, some things are clearly mistakes. Yeah. Some things are things you could have done better. Yeah. I think pretty much everything we do, you can do better. Um, but what I've always liked... So I wrote a another blog that I wrote. I ended up getting on Sky News because of it. I wrote a blog about Lance Armstrong, but I'll talk about the blog I wrote about David Miller. So I'd always been a massive fan of David Villa, and then I was really disgusted when he found out to be doping, and then I came back and I just thought, he's just a human being, you mm. know? He made mistakes, you know, and I heard about you know the turmoil he went through, and I thought I could have made that mistake,
2: mm.
0: you know, and just because. And, and it's what drives me absolutely crazy is this writing off of someone because of a the mistake they've made, and I just think it's an incredibly narrow-minded, selfish, and lazy thing to do.
1: Mm. I mean, we all I mean, people make mistakes, uh, we do, and you know, I, I think it you're judged really harshly now um, in the context of what we are just talking about you know with, with this kind of attitude is like right you're good or you're bad and mm-hmm. and if you're good then you're great and if you're bad then you, you're done it's like no, nobody's going to be 100% good or bad you know there's a great um, there's a great Susan Sontag quote I think it's like um, 5% of people are good 5% of people are bad and 90% of people just go either way depending, right. on, depending on who they're with like um which you know, like, who is really, really bad? Like, like an absolute minority, you know. A, a, a and those
0: people are probably on the bell curve of good and bad. Most people are probably, well, you know, you could talk about, you know, good and evil, and about how people fall off the bell curve towards evil, and it probably accelerates. And there's all kinds of background. I don't, I don't believe that anyone is is good and bad. I can see kids that I around my son or my daughter who were having problems and how that could come off but like so for me you know the sort of back I don't talk I think it upsets my mum so I talk about it because she, she listens to these but you know the background to my childhood I think I could have gone quite badly off the rails because that you know out of you know this bitterness and the difficulties of x y and z and you know I think you you have to make a conscious choice to Go at life positively, but I had a great advantage that I had a loving mother, mm-hmm. so I always had that. That, would, that was such an important, you know, crutch to to lean on. So I always had that stability, and some some kids don't. You know, if you, if you end up in a uh, in a home which nearly happens to me, um, then because uh, my mum's was very seriously ill, then fuck, you know, potentially you're not just not having a re- somebody really close to you who's loving, but also. You're being abused, or something awful like that, and that was incredibly common. And and now we're going to blame those people because of the horrors that have genuine horrors that have happened to them. And I I, I listened to a, a really interesting programmer, but with uh, you, you know Ian Wright, the ex Arsenal striker, yeah, the yeah. striker. So he he had a really rough time as a child. He was very naughty to the point where he went to prison as a teenager. And then this guy, this much older guy, took him under his wing, and. Showed him fatherly love, yep. and basically, I mean, it chokes me up just talking about it. Is uh, Ian Wright? But uh, this is my obsession. This is what I actually. This is what I want to do if I could retire early. I want to hopefully bring kids back from the brink. I think there's a crossroads quite often in our lives, and and I recognise I could, there were a couple of crossroads that I took the right turn on when I could have made the wrong turn, and with Ian Wright, somebody helped him across. You know, mixing my analogies, basically, is somebody put Ian Wright down the right road yeah. when he was really close to going way off. Yeah. And he became one of the greatest footballers in history.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's nuts. So just think about that on a normal scale where somebody's just offered the chance to go and find a partner who they can love and they can get a good job and they can have a decent life. You know, But instead, they end up criminal, they end up on drugs on the streets and it can happen and it's not a wild sort of fantasy to look at life like that
1: no no I mean it doesn't take much you know it's, it's one turn left or right mm. you know um, but yeah
0: there we go there's
1: a nice big thumping
0: <laughs> subject to end with yeah. but we've um, we've uh, we talk quite a lot I'm just having a look uh, blimey an hour and a half blimey. we've gone 50% over the designated podcast wow. time aim wow. system we're
1: going to have to do some serious editing
0: no, I never, ever edit them. Um, I think it's really important not to edit them, even when sometimes, you know, know, the sound's good, not good. With the waitress uh,
1: serving the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. chicken sandwich. And, uh, and it pizza.
0: sounded like we'd set it up. Yeah, it did, actually. Because I think the <laughs> what's so important is to be real. So hopefully we are reasonably real. Cool. Thank you very much, Tom. No problem at no. I hope you enjoyed that um, there was plenty of cycling in there but I think we both kept that um, within the sphere of life um, I think it's also really interesting uh, doing a podcast with somebody who I really don't know um, I think that you uh, if you just get someone intelligent um, somebody who erudite and has uh, their opinions and, and thoughts together. You can talk to her just about uh, anyone, obviously, um, and uh, rather than someone like Matt Stevens, who I know much better, where, you know, there's uh, more banter, I suppose, um, and I think that's the important thing about all these conversations, that they're all different. You know, everyone's different. Um, there are different moods, different times in your life, different times of day where you're going to talk about different things. Um, and conversation as a whole is fascinating and it's very important. I just the act of conversation, if, even if you just talk, um, is a form of human bonding. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that me and Tom are going to get together. There's not going to be any hot stuff. Uh, I just mean that somehow we are connected with the world, with society and a community. Um, And I think that's extremely important for humans. And not all of us get that, Uh, either because of our busy lives, because we're lonely, because we're very, very shy, uh, because we're depressed, um, or a multitude of different reasons. Um, And um, I I think, you know, that podcasts help us with that potentially Um, I think we just need to hear human voices Um, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about life Um, anyway that's a bit of a ramble Um, you can check out jackets on farmjacket.com you can go to twitter where I don't do nearly as much as I used to uh, on farmjacket at farmjacket and it's at farmjacket for the instagram where I do lots more because I like pretty pictures um, and um, if you need some help, um, I have been approached in the past uh, for help from people who feel that I can help them, and I'm very glad to talk to you. I don't, I'm not a professional, um, so please to approach uh, Mind or Calm um, or, or your doctor um, or a professional um, and, and get talking and, and get the ball rolling if you're feeling really shitty because um, uh, you just need to put one front. In front of the other because there are lots of people out there who can help um i think i should mention that more in podcasts but at the end of the day we support mind for um good mental health okay uh take care and um i'll see you
2: again soon